Well, we have another good number of folks that are present this morning, and we're glad to see everybody. Beautiful day. I hope you're enjoying it and will enjoy it. We're glad you're here. And if you're visiting with us, we're especially grateful for you being here. And uh, you might see a visitor card just in front of you. If you can, fill that out for us. You can give it to me on your way out. We would appreciate having a record of you being here. I hope we make you feel welcome. I hope you'll want to be with us. Let me make just a brief comment about the uh, lesson last Sunday morning. I had, uh, up to and including in class this morning, quite a number of comments that were made. I thought that it was probably a timely subject, and it turned out that it was. But I'm grateful for your comments. I'm especially thankful, as we were talking about in class downstairs, man, there were some excellent questions asked. You guys never let me down. Um, when I throw these subjects out there, you have uh, you seem to be ready with good questions. So I, I really appreciate that. We had some uh, some really good questions last Sunday, and uh, if you weren't here, um, that will be online, I'm sure, uh, before too long, and you'll get a chance to go back and hear both the questions and the answers that I tried to give in that. Without any further delay, we'll get into the lesson this morning, and we're going to return back to our theme. We are talking about this quarter, truth in my church, and this morning. I want us to take a look at something that I call the Church of the Ones. Now, from the passage that Chenedu just read, you probably are, are aware or probably have guessed what the Ones are. But the Church of the Ones, I want us to talk about this morning, and I'll get right into it. I want us to talk about, really, what makes our church, what identifies us, but what makes us special. You'll notice the way that I say it here. Our church is the Church of the Ones. We believe in that. It is our identity. We should be known by that. I think in many respects we are known by that. From time to time, I will even get people who will email me or phone, you know, a phone call. Um, of course, information's out there on the website now, and people are seeing that. And sometimes I'll get a call from a person I don't even know. And they'll, you know, start off by asking if this is the Church of Christ, and I'll usually answer, well, this is the preacher for the church. And they'll say they have a question, and they'll launch into talking about maybe something that we do here where we believe very stringently, very strictly, that something must be done. And I'll talk indeed about that, and I'll say, yes, that is what we believe. And, uh, you know, I'll try to study with them or answer further as to why they're you know, why we believe what we believe and why they might be asking that question. But it's what makes us special. It's what makes us stand out as a church among all other churches. It is also, though, to a great degree, what separates us, and I want to talk about that, separate in the sense of our being different, our being holy, if you will, but what separates us from the churches of the world. It's not that we're trying to be different. And I stress this sometimes to people when they'll talk about how different we are. You know, sometimes even within my own family, someone will make a comment about the fact that I'm different or what I preach is different or whatever. I'm not trying to be different for different sake. It's not that we're trying necessarily to be odd. It's not that we're trying to stand out in the sense strictly for standing out. Now, I did a lot of that as a teenager, you know. I might wear weird clothes or whatever. We were laughing about it a couple of days ago, and I was telling Juliet about about a pair of bell-bottoms that I had that had 36-inch bells. Now, you you should try to picture that in your mind. Maybe you should not try to picture that. 
But I tried to be different for different sake. I wanted people to take notice. In fact, I wanted somebody to say something so I could pop them in the mouth. But the truth is, I was trying to be different for different sake. We're not trying to do that. But neither are we trying necessarily like the Jews, for example, when they went to Samuel and demanded a king. We're not trying to be like everybody else either. We're not trying to be like the world, for example, or quote-unquote other churches just because that's what somebody else believes or does. And we would never, and I, I hope that we always maintain that at this place, we would never sacrifice or compromise truth to be like everybody else. The ones that we're going to talk about this morning are exemplary of the fact that we exclusively, that is, only that and acceptance of nothing else, we exclusively hold to what I will say is sacredly entrusted to us. Now we're going to get into some lessons, I'm not going to do that this morning, but we're going to talk about how we came to have the Word of God. And I believe in a real sense that the Lord entrusts us with taking His Word and disseminating it, putting it out there, living it certainly, standing for it, but also getting it out there. It's entrusted to us to do that and to do so without compromise. It is our God-given responsibility by the Lord Himself to follow. You know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And He gives us the responsibility to to follow that which is established by Him through His apostles and prophets. To stand for and to practice truth in this congregation. And that's what we try to do. We stand for the truth. We're not shy about that. We're not backing down from that. We're not trying to be belligerent and be in somebody's face with it. But at the same time, we're not backing down from it. We're not saying, we're not shrinking back and and apologizing because we stand for the truth. Because it is the truth. It is given to us by the Lord Himself. We practice truth in this congregation and that's what we want to do. And we want, uh, obviously, people to understand why we do what we do. His truth, and I'll make this statement several times this morning, but this is the truth, if you'll pardon the, the pun. His truth is exclusive. And so we're going to talk about the exclusive nature of the truth this morning. But it is exclusive of all other systems, all other creeds, all, of, all other opinions, all other ideas. When someone says to me, for example, what do you think? And they want to know what I think about so-and-so. I will answer them, but I will try my best to work in the fact that it is not simply what I think. It is what I believe the Word of God is saying. When someone says, Michael, how do you feel about so-and-so? I have a lot of feelings about a lot of different things. But when it comes to the truth, it is not how I feel. That doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter how I feel about it one way or the other. And I will tell you. There are things, you know, in the Word of God, there are laws, there are things that God commands. If you ask me how I feel about it, I wish, to a degree, it were not so. Because it has consequences. And we could go more into that if you want to talk with me privately about that, but you probably understand what I mean. There are some hard things in the Word of God. Even by Jesus' own admission in Matthew 25, that is so. And yet... At the same time, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what my idea, my opinion is. 
It would not matter if we had a creed. We don't, other than the Word of God. But if we were to write such a creed, like my great-grandfather did, it wouldn't matter. Because exclusive of all of that is what the Lord teaches, what the Lord says. When questions are asked like this, who stands for the truth? If we were, if a If there were a person out there, and I know there are people still, and someone is just simply saying, I wonder who stands for the truth, as they look around in this sea of religion that exists around us. Who stands for the truth? Where do you find the truth? The answer should be the Church of Christ at so-and-so. And hopefully, in this area... As we are known, as people learn of us, etc., if someone is asking the question, where would you find the truth, someone would be able to say eventually, you know, the Church of Christ at East Orange, that's where you find the truth. That may not be the only place you can find it, but certainly the answer would be that this is a place where truth can be found. That's what this place should be. That's what this church should be. The Lord's Church... Going back to what we were saying last Sunday morning, and if you listen to something, if you'll go to the book of Acts and hear something that is said in that discourse with Cornelius there, in Acts 10 and verse 35, Peter made this point when he said to Cornelius and to that household, in every nation, he that fears him, fears God, and works or does what is right, worketh righteousness, is accepted with him. That's inclusive. And as we were talking about prejudice and racism and all of that last Sunday morning, one of the points that I tried to make was that it does not matter. We all come from the same people originally. We all are created by God. And God accepts every one of us indiscriminately, every one of us, with this accept or with this discrimination. That a person obeys what he says. God will accept anyone. It doesn't matter their ethnic background or whatever, their social status. But it is the person who does what is right. That is the person that is acceptable with him. It's inclusive of all people. Jesus died, obviously, for everyone. And yet, the Lord's church is exclusive of all systems. Now, the reason I use that word is because that's what you have in any given church, a system of belief. If you were to ask, if a person were to ask the question about this church here, what do you believe? There is a system of belief. I hope that it is the system of belief found in the Word of God. But that, it's a system. It's point by point. It all works together to be one system of belief. The Lord's Church is exclusive of any other system. There is only one way of doing things, and that is not Michael's way or Wes's way or James' way or Greg's way or anybody else's way. It is Jesus' way. That's the only way that is acceptable of doing things with God. And so we begin to talk about, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We begin to talk about these things that are listed that Chenedu read for us a moment ago. We talk about, for example, in the book of Ephesians, and Paul has already said, and if you'll notice in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body. If we went back to chapter 1 and we were to read verses 21 through 23 at the end of the chapter there, we would find that the body he speaks of is the church. It is that body, for example, if you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
that Paul also talks about here. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, and, and drop down with me to verse 12. For as the body is one, and it has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now obviously in this chapter, and I believe really even in the references in Ephesians, he is talking about a body that corresponds to a human body. And literally, he is talking about the body of Jesus Christ. And obviously, as he would go on to say, if you're looking at Ephesians 1 and verses 21 to 23 there, especially verses 22 and 23, Jesus himself is the head of that body. You and I are members of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, and we won't read all of this, but you know this passage, he goes on to use an analogy here of a human body where there are different body parts. There's an arm, a leg, an eye, a nose, an ear, etc. And he says that corresponds to the different and various members of the body of Christ at Corinth. Now, how did they come to be part of the body? Well, look at verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. It doesn't matter, as we were saying last Sunday morning, it doesn't matter whether you are Jews or Gentiles, you're bond or free. It doesn't matter your background, but we have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now, there's a lot incorporated. In fact, three of the seven things mentioned in Ephesians 4 are right there in that passage. But we're emphasizing the fact there is one body, one church as far as the Lord's recognition. And there is one Spirit. For by one Spirit, verse 13, are we all baptized into one body. I choose Acts 5 and verses 3 and 4, if you'll go back there with me to that passage, because this is where Ananias and Sapphira, they were making a, dona a donation, a contribution, but they lied about it. They sold a, a piece of property or whatever, but they sold a possession. They took some money in. They kept part of it for themselves, and they gave the rest of it, but they claimed they gave the whole price of the sale. They lied. And if you look at verses 3 and 4, when Peter confronted Ananias, he asked him the question of why Satan had filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of, of the land. While it remained, and what he's saying is, while it was still yours, it was in your power to do with it what you wanted, wasn't it? Ananias would have to say yes to that. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied unto men, notice, but unto God. There are many spirits. All of us, in one sense, has a spirit. Every animal, in one sense, has a spirit. There are many spirits, but there is only one holy spirit. And when Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 that there is one body... And by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. He refers to the Holy Spirit who is Himself God. We believe in that Holy Spirit. We don't believe in, a, in an emotional movement. I grew up thinking of the Holy Spirit as just some kind of strange force that comes on people and makes them do all kinds of things. That's not what we believe. We believe in a person of the Holy Spirit who is himself God. And that's what Peter was saying here. We also believe, and we will talk about it really this morning, but we will at other times. If you look down in verse 32, Peter will make the point that it is this Holy Spirit that not only takes us and puts us into the church or into the body of Christ, but that God puts the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 32, the Holy Spirit is 
given to all people, to every person who obeys God. We believe in one spirit. We believe in one hope. Go with me to Colossians 1. And I'm going to come back in just a moment and talk more about this, but let's read what Paul says first, and then I'll talk about why it is important to believe in one hope and the difference that exists. Look at verse 5, for example, when he says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel? He speaks of you obeying the gospel and having a hope in heaven. Now notice down in verse 27 when he says it like this. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In one very real sense, Jesus himself is our hope. Because everything we believe and everything we expect and everything we wait for is embodied in Jesus Christ. If I speak of heaven... To a Christian, heaven is being with Jesus. If I speak of the means to go to heaven, to a Christian, the only way to get to heaven, no one goes to the Father except by me, Jesus said. So the Bible sometimes speaks of our hope being Jesus. But it also speaks of what we expect someday. Why do I do the things I do? Make the sacrifices I make. Live the life I live. Give up certain things that I give up. Do other things that I might not be disposed to do. Why do I do all of that? Because I want to go to heaven. And because I have an expectation that at the end of this life, if I have done those things and worked righteousness, to quote Acts 10, if I've done what is right, then I'm accepted with God and I will go to heaven. We'll come back to that in just a moment. There is one Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Paul makes this point as he talks about the idea of our, you know, really being subjected to the ideas and principles even of other people. Now this was in a context of, should I eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? But Paul made the point here that I am subject to one Lord. I'm accountable to one Lord. He makes that point often, Romans 14 notably. But my accountability is to one Lord. One Lord who tells me what to do. One Lord who says the way things must be. It is not a preacher or a group of people somewhere or a ruling body. It's not the ideas of other people. It's certainly not the prejudices of other people. I'm accountable to Jesus. Look at verse 6 here. To us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, he says. And we in Him. And to us, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, notice, and we by Him. I've been created by Jesus. He is my Lord. He is the one I submit to. He's the one I listen to. He's the one I follow. He's the one that I ask the question, what should I do? What do I have to do? What must I do? What do you want me to do? He is my Lord. And when we start talking about different ideas of what to do, I mean, different religious ideas and what we're supposed to do and all of that kind of thing, the answer has to come back to Jesus. It doesn't matter what I think or feel. And it doesn't matter what you think or feel. And it doesn't matter the 130 or 40, whatever we have in here this morning, we may all have different opinions about something, and that doesn't matter. In the end, if God has spoken to it, Now, he might not. He might not have spoken to it. 
We have, as I look around here, people are dressed in just about every color of the rainbow. I don't know that God ever said one word about it. You can wear whatever you want to wear in that sense, whatever color clothing you want to wear. But if he speaks to it, and I think we understand that, when he speaks of these things that are talked about in the Word of God, then we look to the Lord. There is one Lord. There is one faith. In Jude, verse 3, Jude talks about our contending. That is literally fighting for the one faith. Contend earnestly, he said, vigorously, with all your spirit, all your mind, for the faith that was once delivered. We're going to get into talking about that. I'm not going to talk so much about it this morning, but we're going to talk about the fact that it was once delivered and what that means and the impact of that. Jude says contend for it. It is the one faith, the one recognized faith by God. There is one baptism. We already talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Turn over to 1 Peter 3 for a moment. When I was growing up, and I've talked a little bit about this, and I'm going to take try not to take more than a minute here to talk about it, but I, when I was growing up, salvation and the salvation experience was very subjective. In short... We had an altar call, and it would be very emotional, and a person would come down to the front. There was an altar. It was like a bench. And a person would bow down, and they would begin to pray to God for salvation, begging God to forgive them of their sins, begging God to accept them. And they waited for an emotional confirmation from God, we believed, an emotional confirmation that, in fact, you had been saved. Now, this is very subjective because it's based on how you feel. Do you feel saved? In fact, that question was often asked. Do you feel saved? I want you to compare that to what Peter is saying here. Look at 1 Peter 3. When he compares our baptism, if you can see in verse 20, to the flood and the fact that there was an ark, and it would have been, as experts will tell us, about two-thirds submerged under the water and people down under the water, literally. And he says, anatypically, or the like figure, verse 21... Whereunto even baptism does also now save us. The one baptism Paul speaks of. What baptism? Well, obviously water. Or he's talking about water here. He's talking about, if you look at the end of verse 20, eight souls were saved by water. And corresponding to that, we are baptized and it saves us. But notice how it's not an emotional thing. I mean, it can be. But that's not what's... What, you don't have to rely upon that subjective feeling. Look at verse 21. The like figure wherein to even baptism, baptism does also now save us. Now, we're not talking about a simple bath, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. But notice the answer, the appeal for a good conscience to God. What does that mean? That means I look in the Word of God and I see His law. And this is a legal appeal. God, your law says be baptized for forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38. It says be baptized to be saved, Mark 16. It says to be made a disciple, we are baptized, Matthew 28, verse 19. That's your law, God. And so if I do that, then I may, in a legal sense, appeal to you for a clear conscience. Is that what you're telling me? God is saying that's exactly right. And the authority behind that is Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 21. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so... Forty years later, literally for me, 
I may look back at February 6, 1977, and I may see that young guy, and I might see him going up to the front of a building and confessing his faith to a preacher, Dale Smelser in this case. And based upon that confession, my, my intention to change my life, I might see that young guy, 40 years ago, after all these years, what did I do? I was baptized. I was put under the water and raised up out of it. And I might reflect back on that and I might look at the law of God and I might continue to rest upon the fact that I entered a legal appeal to God that day by my action. And God granted me salvation. And I, it's not that I have to look back and ask myself, how did I feel? Because I cannot put my finger on that. I can't hold on to that. I can't go back. I, I, I would dare say there's not a person in this room, try as hard as you may, that can reach back over years, 40, some of them, and try to recapture the feeling you have. We're just not capable of doing that. We wish we were. But you can look at what you did, and you can look at what it says. One baptism. And finally, there is one God and Father. 1 Peter 1, if you're here in this passage, turn back a page. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us. One God and Father. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. What does that mean? Well, it means this. There is one body or one church. Not many different ones. And that is not to say, that's not the same as pointing a finger at somebody else and saying, ours is the only right church, or your church is wrong, or our church is better than your church, like some kennel ration commercial. You know, my dog's better than your dog, remember that? It's not saying that. It is saying from the standpoint of the Word of God, there is one body, one church, Jesus' body. That's what it's saying. Not many different ones. One body of believers whose membership, that is the membership of the body of Christ, came by one baptism. Not by any other means or methods or procedures, and there are many of them out there for how a person might be a member of a particular body. But no, the one body, the membership, comes by the one baptism. And it is based on one faith. One truth, one faith, forever delivered. Not a diversity of beliefs, or creeds, or different ideas, or opinions, or decisions that have been made at a point in time where a group of people, a group of men or whomever, got together and said, we're going to do it this way. No, it is not based on anything but the Word of God. And that body of members who came to be so by being baptized, they serve one God and Father. Not many gods. They serve one Lord, not many lords. They do not, for example, pit Jesus the prophet next to a Muhammad or a Joseph Smith who both claim equality, if not superiority. No, they serve one Lord and one Holy Spirit. And it is not a different spirit and a different idea of the spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is God that Peter said to Ananias, you lied to. They serve God the Father, Lord, and Holy Spirit. And they live in one hope 
You remember I said I'd come back to this. Because there are all kinds of hopes out there. If you were to go to the different religious groups and you were to find out, the reason I put up here not of any other paradise, planet, or eternal kingdom, that's because all are believed. In fact, within less than one mile of this building, you could find all three of those things. I checked it. And there are people less than a mile from here that the hope they are preaching this morning, for example, right across the road. Whether their people understand it or not, the hope they are preaching is that somehow, some way, they will progress someday to be a God themselves with their own planet like this one. And that's all Jehovah really is. He is of a race of gods, one of many. And there are other people who are preaching not heaven, not an eternal coexistence with God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, but a paradise on earth. That is very much like an earthly paradise. With all the pleasures, sexual and otherwise, that we enjoy on this earth, that that is the paradise they are looking forward to. And there are people who are looking for an eternal kingdom where people will be part of a ruling class if they are Christians. If they buy into it now, as opposed to being forced into it later, they will be part of a ruling class, literally kings. Together with Jesus. We believe in none of that. Because the Bible teaches us of heaven. An eternal place to be with God. To be with Jesus. To be with the Holy Spirit. And mind you, He will be God. And we will be people. Honoring Him. Praising and loving Him. And yes, coexisting with Him. For all eternity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one body, one God, one Lord, one Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, this system of belief that some might look at and say, oh, that's, that's, that's too exclusive. It doesn't accept what everybody else believes. It's what Jesus died for. It is His way. It is His truth. It is His life. He gave His life for us that we can be part of this. It's not that we're trying to say we're better than other people. It isn't even about that. It's not that we're trying to say our way of thinking is better than someone else's way of thinking. I don't know that my way of thinking is any better than anybody else's. My opinions, my, my ideas. No, but the Lord's are. It's His way, His thoughts, His ideas. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to be part of that. You believe in Jesus. You know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lord. You'll confess your belief in Him. You're willing this morning to change your life and submit your life to Him. To change as as it needs to be changed. To live your life the way He wants you to live it. If this morning you'll be baptized, that one baptism we spoke of, You will be part of the body of Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be saved. And maybe you're here this morning and you look at your life and you say, you know, I've done that. I I was baptized once, but I haven't been living my life in submission to my Lord. And I need to turn all that around. If you need to do that, won't you please come while we stand and sing?